Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Well, no bells and whistles here, no introduction. We've got some huge news. The President of the United States is in quarantine tonight because his close aide, Hope Hicks, has tested positive. She went with him to Minnesota and the debate, uh, which was in Cleveland. And amazingly, I was, I guess, meant to have my guest on now. This was a couple hours ago, but it's all working out. Bob Zadek, you are a talk show host yourself uh, in Sacramento uh, on The Answer Out There. And uh, you've written a new actually, book. I'm in, actually, it's not in Sacramento. The station's in uh Alex, thank you for having me. The station's in Fremont. Uh, I live um, in Southern California. The station's in Fremont, and we are in about 8 a.m. markets on the West Coast. Well, congratulations on that. You're a libertarian. Thank so you. I And I notice in your book you actually do criticize Trump for some of the actions he's taken, but also, of course, um, reacting to the left. But let's get to the breaking news, shall we? Um did you think it would be Trump that had to be quarantining and not Biden? Because I was thinking something happened to Biden, not to Trump's uh, campaign this whole time. Well, actually, um, I spend my life um, making loans and being a lawyer, not practicing epidemiology. <laughs> so I didn't really have a strong feeling about which of them or anybody else was going to be quarantined with the virus. I had my own private hopes that I'll keep to myself, but I had no, I wasn't speculating. I wasn't betting in the line anywhere in the UK on who was going to be the first presidential candidate to be quarantined. So I didn't lose any money on it, nor did I waste much intellectual energy trying to figure it out. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It just was like, I figured one of them might have it though, because they're both seventies, right? And the health is, is paramount. And I think people didn't talk enough about the health leading into this, by the way. Well, uh, they, when both presidential candidates are going to be, whichever one gets elected or reelected, as the case may be, they're going to be in their 80s during their tenure in office and break a uh, 231-year-old record for our country. Um, I think when it's almost a tie, handicapping their health uh, is hardly an issue. Uh, so, um, I th- plus a plus. Uh, most people have see so much writing on this election that they did not even distracted in thinking about health. There are so many more pressing things to to obsess about that. Mm-hmm. I guess the public just didn't spend much time betting on who's going to outlive who. Right. Well, that that is interesting. It just went life and death in that moment, but it's true. Who knows what could happen when you get the virus? But. Let me ask you, because your book is called Essential Liberty. Let me ask you, is this an essential moment right now, this COVID test alone? Oh, it, 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 has, been, uh, it is, has been the founder's worst nightmare in many ways. Um, as, a, as a libertarian, of course, we, we, we value and cherish liberty, not liberty to do whatever we want, 
there is one limitation, which is we ought to be able to organize our lives and take responsibility for our lives and have maximum freedom with the limitation that we cannot exercise that freedom at the expense of somebody else's freedom or property rights. So you're free to do whatever you want so long as you do not harm another's person or property. But so here we have the lockdown, which was virtually unprecedented. Uh, there hasn't been enough written about this, but yes, of course, the, the virus has tested our tolerance for deprivation of liberty, because this is the first time really that uh, uh, elected officials, mostly mayors and governors, because the president doesn't have the constitutional power to do so, but mayors and governors, as we all know around the country, have for the first time required people who are not sick, who are not a threat to somebody else, to stay at home. Why? Because we are not smart enough or competent enough to make our own decisions. So, uh, Mayor de Blasio or Governor Cuomo or Newsom or all of the other autocratic governors have felt they have to take char charge of our lives and our health. Now, it, if somebody is sick, of course they ought to be quarantined. That's been the history of the planet, that when we have to protect ourselves from others, then of course government in its role of protecting our health can order a quarantine, which means if you're sick, you stay out of society, but never has anybody be compelled who is healthy to stay out of society for their own good. This is the first in a 231-year history of our country. Well, I want to get to your comment you made actually earlier in the year calling it health theater. But I, as you say, it's a first. Is it true? And I read this in the book um, a few pages in, by the way. It's, it's really great reading. I, I recommend it. Um, Thank is you. It true? Thank you. Is it true that CDC on their website said, once the pandemic hits, you are stripped of your rights? Is that right? No. Well, no. That's, that's an overstatement. Um, and you'll notice, if, if you look at that, there is no citation where a statement that outlandish is made. One ought to, as a lawyer, you would expect to find a citation or a footnote giving the authority for making that statement. Of course, there was none. But that's not true. If you are sick, if you are a carrier, if you are carrying a disease that can harm others where they can't protect themselves, then yes, because you are sick, you may be deprived of such of your rights as is necessary to protect others. But no, a pandemic doesn't mean, okay, leave your rights at the door. Mm. You're our, under our total control. So that statement is an obscene overstatement, and it's just plain wrong. Hmm. Interesting, because I think one of your guests had mentioned it. That's why I referenced it. Now, you also yes. write 200 or 25,000 San Francisco residents in 1900? What happened there? You, you say that there was quarantining back then as well. There was a quarantine, but the quarantine was of the sick people. Uh, when there is, we have had common law and English law, which we inherited uh, when the colonies were formed, um, and most of the uh, much of the English-speaking world has inherited the British common law tradition. Under common law, 
once there is an epidemic, and that epidemics go back for as long as mankind has walked the planet, once there is an epidemic where one person has no way of, I have, if there's an epidemic, I have no way to protect myself from being in contact with another person. I can't do it by myself. So government must step in and do what individuals cannot do on their own. In this case, keeping the sick people separated from the healthy people. Uh, and that's a, an appropriate role of government. Nobody really questions that. But the Constitution requires that when any, when any resident is to be deprived of their essential liberties, their core liberties, they, government must do so in the least restrictive means, which is tailored to accomplish a very specific governmental goal, keeping people healthy. So the government must be restrictive, must be very stingy about exercising those rights because liberty is so important. But where, go, where governors just, or mayors just say, everybody stays home and nobody can go to work. Nobody can go to work whether you want to or not. And once you do that, and then the exceptions start to roll in. So then you have arbitrary government. Arbitrary is the way governments fail if they are arbitrary. And they just favor those people who they choose to favor without any rhyme or reason. So you cannot go to church, but you can have a Black Lives Matter march, because that's just too important. Once arbitrariness sets in, people lose faith in their government, their loyalty to government disappears, and civilized society starts to crumble. That's not a prediction. That's the natural order of things. So therefore, government has to be take great care to defend their decisions on the basis of rational protection of human life and must be very stingy in the exercise of that deprivation of liberty because the constitution requires it but that didn't happen there was no thoughtfulness it was just everybody stays home nobody is allowed to work nobody is allowed to go outside that is government knows better than you how you should order your life it is sickening now i'm glad that you had mentioned that you were a lawyer because i've got this theory that with a new, with Amy Barrett, Amy Coney Barrett's uh, pending nomination, pending you know confirmation to the SCOTUS, is it possible we see more lawsuits filed against these Democratic leaders in hopes that the SCOTUS does pick up one of these lockdown measure lawsuits to truly test the constitutional um, reasoning behind them? Could that happen? I I, it well you asked too easy a question. Could it okay. happen? Of course it could happen. Is it likely to happen? I don't think so. And remember that uh, the Supreme Court, in fact, the judicial system, is very careful about not, in, not interjecting itself into what is called political controversies. Many times the Supreme Court will not take the case because it will decide this issue 
should be decided at the ballot box by the legislature or by the executive branch. And especially if there are fights between two branches of government, the executive and the legislature, the Supreme Court is very loath to step into that controversy because those are called in Supreme Court lingo political decisions, which the Supreme Court tries very hard to avoid. It would much rather defer to the Democratic branches, let the voters decide this stuff. So are there likely to be cases? I will just say in a very mild way, perhaps. I don't think it's likely. And remember, remember that the majority, such as it may be, and by the way, I don't like referring to a 6-3 conservative majority, because the word conservative doesn't really have an accurate meaning when you are talking about the judiciary. It describes, um, uh, I'd much rather focus on uh, classifying judges by their judicial philosophy rather than by their political orientation. But it's common to refer to the conservative justices as conservatives. So I will do so too. So the 6-3, mm-hmm. if that's going to be a 6-3 conservative to progressive majority is going to be short-lived because it is highly likely if the Democrats capture the Senate, do not lose the House, which they're not going to do, and capture the presidency, it's highly likely there will be the court packing that Obama, I'm sorry, that Biden refused to take a position on, on the so-called debate on Tuesday night, but there will be court packing, and that court packing will have very serious consequences, well beyond the mere quality of the decisions. Uh, We can go into that if we have time and you are so inclined, but court packing is about the most fearful post-election political event that's likely to happen. It scares the heck out of me. Well, well, let's talk about that for a second, because you are in the law and you know this better than me and I'm sure some of the listeners, so... Court packing doesn't sound good on the surface, but give us a little more depth to this. What what could it do if Biden does start packing the court if he's elected? Well, we start with the premise that if you were to um, look at the three branches of government, the executive, the presidency, the legislative, the House and the Senate, and the judiciary, the Supreme Court and the federal court system, as between those three branches, the only branch that enjoys pretty widespread respect uh, in the voting population is the Supreme Court. They are held in infinitely higher regard because they are non-political in theory. They are smart people trained in the law who are designed to resolve hard cases and often constitutional cases on the Constitution. And there is respect for that. When you start Packing the court means the legislate, the unbeknownst to most people, the number of justices on the Supreme Court is not fixed in the Constitution. It's a creature of statute. And we have had, in the course of our 231 years, we have had any number from 5, 6, 7, 8, 10, 11, 10, 9. It's been all over the map in terms of number of justices. And uh, sometimes because the country has grown, other times because the Congress doesn't like the 
political orientation as it is perceived by the court, and they just increase the number of judges and then load up the Supreme Court with judges who the existing Congress and president like. So they tip the scales. And the the, and there's no question the Democrats will do that if they get the White House and the Senate, which means now the Supreme Court, because it's been loaded up by the Senate for political reasons, now the Supreme Court becomes, in the eyes of the public, a political branch and not a judicial branch. It just becomes a super legislature in the eyes of the public. Well, the respect for the Supreme Court will decline, and the faith in the rule of law will decline accordingly. Well, I thought in 2015 when gay marriage was allowed, I mean, whatever your views on that, I think people did think the court took a side on that. So I think we've already tasted people's feelings on those kind of activist courts, but maybe you don't think that was an activist move. I, I am impart neutral to that, but I would just say around what I was seeing is people thought that was an activist move and not a judicial move. So well, let me, let, me help, let me help a little bit. The word activist, activist is used by an observer to describe the court taking a position that the observer doesn't like, because every judge, whether they're progressive or conservative, has done things which the other side has accurately said was activist. So neither, neither side has a monopoly on activism. But what you, when you pick a gay marriage as an example, it's very interesting because in most cases where the Supreme Court is forced to make hard decisions from Brown v. Board of Education to gay marriage to contraception, um, all of these hard decisions, it does so because the Democratic branches, the House and the Senate at the federal level and the president, have abdicated. The country needed guidance on the issue of gay marriage. The guidance should have come from the legislature, but the legislature abdicates because the legislature understands if they don't take hard votes, no one's going to kick them out of office. So they avoid it. So the legislature becomes dysfunctional, focused only on reelection. So we have a vacuum. Well, who's left? The president can't pass laws. The country needs guidance. The Supreme Court is the only game in town that's left once the legislature abdicates. Wow, they didn't want is... to make those decisions. They have no choice. They have no choice. So, with by the way, did you happen to know Ruth Bader Ginsburg in your in her time, I did not. I did her. not. I am not a litigator. I do transactions. I help people uh, acquire things they want uh, in negotiated exchanges with two consenting adults, both of whom are better off for the experience. I proudly say I do not go into a courtroom. Well, that's uh, that may be may be good for mental health, right? To stay out of that whole thing going on there. Um, but no, all of this is fascinating because. I know that the other thing about this is number nine. Is it going to stay nine justices? Is it not? No, no. You don't see it staying. It's going to go to 12. No, it's not. Wow. Unless, unless we have divided government. The only hope I see for post-2020 America is somehow the Republicans either keep the White House, doesn't look, doesn't look likely, or 
keep the Senate. If they keep the Senate, we have dodged a profoundly dangerous bullet, and we will have divided government, um, and we can breathe a sigh of relief. Life will go on with Dems and Republicans hating each other uh, for two more years, but no one will be able to take over your life or my life for at least another two years. Bob, you obviously wrote so Bob Zay- pray for pray for divided government. Absolutely, and even in New York, we see one party system is just ruining us left and right. But and, I want and I wa- California and Cali. Uh, I wanted to get to this though because I'm talking about Bob Zadek. He's a talk show host on the coast. I like that rhyme. I host the Bob Zadek show. Uh, you can find him at bobzadek.com, and he's the author of the new book Essential Liberty. So you kind of dash my hopes with SCOTUS. Uh, helping out the small business owner. So if they can't do it, who can help the small business owner try and get out from under this seemingly tyrannical rule we're seeing right now with all the lockdown measures? I have lived in the world of small business professionally for 56 years. I love small business. That's who my clients are. That's who I lend to. That's who I hang out with. That's who I place all my hope in. And I will say, Alex, I don't fear that much for small business, and here's why. Entrepreneurs in America, God bless them all, they keep us having the stuff we want at the price we want to pay for it. They, They hire, they supply most of the jobs in America. And what gives me so much faith, Alex, is that, and I say this, with, uh, with half of a century of experience, if there is a, a dime to be made, if there is a job to be created, an entrepreneur with their determination, with their savvy, with their agility, being able to move on a dime, they will find a way to do it. And therefore, uh, I have never seen a force or a government with sufficient power to snuff out small business. Even in the most autocratic of regimes, there is always a vigorous, it's unfortunately a black market, but it is a functioning market nevertheless. People will find a way to exchange goods and services between one another because it is in everybody's DNA to do so. So while business will do better if government takes a step back and gets out of the way, I don't fear for the failure of small business, except except when you have a government assuming unconstitutional powers and, and mandating through lockdowns, no one is allowed to open their shop. Nobody is allowed to cut somebody else's hair. It is against the law. You will go to jail. Once we have the autocracy that you have experienced in New York and I have experienced in California, then, of course, there's no other way for small business to prosper. And so long as government doesn't do lockdowns, small business will find it more expensive, but small business will survive, and they will simply pass along the costs of of more regulation onto consumers. So the ones who suffer, Alex, are the poor schnooks, you and I, who end yeah. up paying more for stuff, and it's not our fault, and it's not the people's fault who sell it to us. They have to make a profit. They have to pass through all of the costs, even the costs of regulation. So businesses don't 
absorb the regulatory cost the consumers do. Now, it makes our businesses uncompetitive with businesses in other countries. But don't you worry, Alex. Small business will always save us. I always think there's a reason why those who did survive survived. I think it's because a lot of these owners are smart enough to know how to survive a pandemic. And we do see that here and there. Now, you know, you talk about leadership. Your mayor in L.A., I mean, I don't know if he's your mayor, but in L.A., Garcetti was about to be recalled. I thought there was a vote they were going to take up on that, and that's not happening. But could we see anything like that happen to any of these mayors, a recall vote? Not in California. Not unlikely, unlikely for another year or so. Uh, and the reason I say year or so is as much as I despise, and that's a strong word but appropriate word, what de Blasio does, what Cuomo does, what Garcetti does, what Newsom does, uh, what uh, the mayor of Chicago does, as much as I despise what they do, in a way, I want them to continue to do it. Because the only when they do it and they demonstrate in a way that's undeniable how that governmental model fails and California, San Francisco, L.A., New York, Chicago fail and everybody leaves. And that is, Alex, that is the magic of democracy. Foot voting, leaving and saying, I've had enough. I'm taking my money, I'm taking my kids, I'm taking my jobs, and I'm going to Florida, and I'm going to, I'm going to West Virginia, I'm going somewhere else. That right. is, foot voting is so much more powerful than ballot voting. Valid, ballot voting, except in like 15 counties in the country, doesn't make a hoot, doesn't make a hoot of difference. Foot voting, everybody who votes with their feet makes and a moves around. Yep. that... They, and therefore, what we have in our system of federalism with 50 states, what we have is we have competition between governments. And California and New York are losing. Their product is a failed product. And I can talk on radio all night and all day, and people will listen, and they will then go about their lives. But once the business model fails, and it will fail. They will learn. They being the voters will learn. No, we have to stop buying what you're selling in terms of form of government. And the government will have no choice but to change or have no people except for except for people who don't have the money to move or, or the desire. So I love what's going on in New York. And I love what's going on in California because it makes me very smart. I can predict one thing when I can point to a state or a city and say, there, there's my proof. What's your mm. proof? That means I win the argument and you win the argument, Alex. Well, and Bob, when, when you do talk about all of this, uh, those on the left, your friends, whatever you want to call them, I don't know if they're friends anymore, but based on what they seem to be saying uh, to me anyway. But my point is that they seem to say, oh, no, we should keep it closed down. I've never heard anybody in America have that mentality before. Usually we're an up-and-coming, let's-get-going country. Now we got people saying, no, let's keep it shut down. It's like, what? what? What are you even talking about? That doesn't make sense. Well, the reason... And then uh, you're you heard, shot, uh, one of the uh, things is you, you're shot down if you do advocate for reopening. That's the other thing I've been seeing, too. That's right. And the reason is because 
well, Governor Cuomo said it the best. He said, and you'll recall this, Alex, even one life is priceless, which means if you can save one life by keeping everything locked down, the fact that you inflict poverty on millions and ill health because mental health deteriorates, because people don't take care of their bodies because they can't get the doctors, they can't get money, they, uh, child abuse goes up. Everything, all these bad things happen to save one priceless life and to show the utter intellectual bankruptcy of what uh, Cuomo said and what Governor Wolf in Pennsylvania said when he said, first we save lives, then we save livelihoods. To show you the utter intellectual bankruptcy, we lose about 55,000 Americans to traffic accidents in the, in the United States. Now, if Governor Cuomo means what he says, even one life is priceless, he would have to, if he's intellectually honest, say, okay, we should make driving illegal because we can save 55,000 lives. According to Governor Cuomo, the cost of saving the life is irrelevant. Save lives is all that counts. That's why he does the lockdown. He doesn't focus on the cost, the fact that he's killing a great city. He doesn't focus on that. He just focuses on one half of the equation. It's like looking at, a, at, looking at your bank balance and only looking at the savings <laughs> and not the expenses. You have to get the whole picture. Absolutely. And unless you're, so what they miss is when Biden says, I'm going to follow the science. That sounds sensible, doesn't it? Of course it does. However, you say, which science? If the science is an economist, I'm all in. If the science is a doctor, I'm not all in. And what these leaders don't understand, Cuomo and all the other mayors and governors are hired not to hide behind a scientist, but to make the hard call. I've listened to the science, I've listened to the economists, and I have concluded that what's best for the country or the state overall, balancing economics, balancing science, they're both science, what I conclude is a lockdown is worse than death. But no Absolutely. one does that because it's... They're cowardly. That's making a decision. And so we have people who are elected. We have 99% of what an elected official does, an eighth grader can do. But once in a while, once in a while, as Harry Truman said, the buck stops here. And nobody, nobody in public life especially wants that buck to stop with them. So they hide behind people in white robes and doctors with stethoscopes in their pocket. And they say, it's not my fault. Talk to the doctor, but don't just ask a doctor. Ask an economist as well, and then make the decision balancing both. That's what isn't being done. No, it's not. And by the way, you're relying on a scientist, a.k.a. Dr. Fauci, who wore no mask at the Washington National game. You know, we saw that picture. And he also threw a bad first pitch out. But the first part of that is like, he still does things that he's telling us to do. He's not doing it. It's just like mind-boggling. That's who they're listening to. Hey, Bob, as you said earlier, we've had this these sicknesses before, not like COVID, but other things. We were able to move around. 
So what was it? Did the demo, did, was there a seizing of opportunity here? Is that what this was? Or what, what do you see? Why the, do we the want studies are starting to come, The studies are starting to come out, and they are pretty, pretty universal. Now, of course, they're not totally universal. But looking at, on balance, the lockdown, now that we have a whole world in different states and different countries which have adopted different approaches, it's pretty – it'll be – pretty gosh darn clear that the decision to do the lockdown made sense in the very early stages when nobody knew anything. But by May, it was starting to become recognized that the lockdown was simply the wrong policy. Yes, there would be deaths, but deaths are part of it. A depression is just as bad as death from illness because of the widespread despair that it causes. And the government should have, the job of government was to keep people informed about how the virus is transmitted, what could happen if you go to work, what could happen if you go to a restaurant, and people will decide. And then people, you and I, Alex, are allowed to make decisions about our own bodies and minds and lives and family. That's, we are here, we are competent to do so. We need information, but we don't need somebody to assume responsibility for us. And what where progressives and free marketeers divert the most is that the progressive will always default to the use of force and coercion. The free marketeers will default to freedom. We will we will inform the public so they can make wise decisions. We will be honest with them, but the decision is theirs. Progressives would criminalize dangerous sports because we're not competent to make a decision if we want to enjoy the thrill of skydiving or the thrill of skiing very fast straight down a mountain. We are free to make those decisions so long as we are not harming somebody who didn't sign on to the activity. And that's, that's the difference. Any policy, pick any policy in this country and look at a progressive approach and a free market approach or a freedom approach, the difference is the progressive has to have force and coercion and guns to carry out the policy. Mm. You and I, Alex, do not need force. No one has to be compelled to be free. No one. Right. You know, and uh, talk about sports really quickly. In a way, uh, California fans are criminalized because they can't even go see the ALCS, uh, ALDS, uh, you know, that's going on out there. Meanwhile, in Texas, you're going to have the NLCS attended by 11,000 fans. It really is amazing, as you pointed out just a minute ago, how divided we are in the United States of America. You got one state saying, no, you can't do it. You got Texas saying, yes, go ahead, go to these games. It's like, when can we come together again? Will it ever happen that we're... No, Alex, Alex, I don't want us to come together. I don't want there to be unity. Because if you have 50 states, we don't have to come together. California can have its rules done by its elected officials, and Texas can have its rules. That doesn't trouble me doesn't trouble me one bit and the country will decide by voting with their feet which regime which system 
is more appealing to them. And so therefore, I don't want unity. And, huh. and I have my own, there's a reason why we are more divided than ever. And by the way, we're not more divided than ever. But there is reason why we feel more divided. And that's what we do. And you know what it is? Because we have power concentrated in Washington, which means every federal election, our freedom is on the line. And we have no choice except to move to Canada. However, if we had power residing in the states, there would be no there would be no divisiveness in the country because if I liked a progressive form of government, well, I got it right here in my state. If I didn't like it, I don't have to hit the streets and be a vandal and break into stores. I can move to Nevada. So I'm calm. So long as people have choices, they don't get violent. But when all the power is in Washington, there's only one election that matters. It's the federal election, which means it's all or nothing. And you don't like it, you have to move to Canada or Mexico. Or, That's or what Europe. makes us so divisive. It's we have no choice because too much power is at the federal level. It's almost like you're advocating for states' rights. And even if they want to sink themselves, go for it. That's their right to sink themselves, you know? I love it. I love states' rights because it gives, it creates competition. It creates 50 states competing for, competing for citizens. I love it. Hey, you know, you, you make a great point. I actually applauded um, TD Ameritrade made that deal with Charles Schwab. And what did Schwab do? They left San Francisco entirely because of their high tax policies and moved to Texas. I'm like, good. Show the policies of these liberal, far liberal cities what's wrong, you know, that we don't want to deal with it anymore. So move out. So I can see what you're talking about there when you say move out. Vote, foot voting, foot voting. It's the most democratic thing a person could do. It's better than ballot voting. Ballot voting is, is, is a vacuous act. It doesn't make a difference. There's only, there's only a couple hundred thousand people whose vote makes a difference in federal elections. But in foot voting, you make a profound difference in your own life. If you vote, Alex, your vote will never change your life. Not one tiny bit. Not, not by a dime. If you foot vote, you profoundly change your life. You change everything for you and your family. Foot voting is magic. Ballot voting is fake. For me, foot voting, I actually, I have one leg, so this is funny we're talking about it like this. Uh, but foot voting, for me, is just getting out and saying, you know what, I'm not going to listen to the, the fear that's coming from Cuomo's mouth. I'm, I'm going to go and live my life. That's what my, for me, right now, that's what my foot voting is. So I, I, I am rebelling in that way, I guess you'd say. But... Foot voting is not rebelling. It's just saying, look, you have a bad marriage, you change marriage. You have a bad job, you change the job. You have bad government, you change the government. You're free to do so. Bob, but if you have a bad federal government, you can't – foot voting is too, is too ups, upsetting. You have to go to Canada. That's too dramatic. How can people say they're going to leave and they never do, though? That's the funny thing. Like all these celebrities say, yeah, we're leaving if Trump gets elected, but they're still here. So what was that all about? Well, they, they're letting off steam. They're getting attention. To me, Alex, I am so uninterested in what celebrities say or do or think. Uh, I care what elected officials say and do because it affects me. Uh, I care what people who are smart, professors and scholars say, because I learn from them. But 
am I going to learn from what Susan Sarandon says? Of course not. So it's noise to me. It's just noise. Well, let me ask you a better question then. Um, President Trump, did you have issues with the way he handled it, even to the point of locking us down? Did you have an issue with that? Or what would you say he could have done better? Actually, Trump didn't, lock, Trump didn't lock us down. Um, I don't know. I'd have to really be inside the beltway to have a, a, an informed opinion. But to do the best I can to answer your question, uh, what we experienced with Trump was, in the beginning, his decision-making was flawed. Um, he... Whatever his motivation was, he doesn't like bad news. He, 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 he likes to be the savior, and he wasn't honest with us, as it appears. And any time an elected official feels they have to protect me from reality, there's no recovery from that. No one dare put, keep something from me because I can't be trusted with the information. Uh, and Trump did that, apparently, in the beginning. Ultimately, Operation Warp Speed may end up being a well-executed plan. We'll find out. Understand, the pandemic virus is, for the most part, a local issue. Since our founding, the, the health and safety of citizens is always at state and city level, not the federal level. We have no federal police force. We do, we, we sort of do now. We're not supposed to, but we do. We have many federal police forces. But the issue of public safety is not supposed to be a federal responsibility. It's a state and local responsibility. It's called broadly the police power, even though it's much more than just police. Police power means responsibility for the, for the health and safety of citizens is called the police power. And Trump is not the primary, other than moving some money around, it's not Trump's responsibility. Indeed, I don't think there should be a CDC um, because it's just become too political. And I agree uh, with that. It's, it's, but Bob, the, the thing about the police is what do you do then if your own state, if your own city doesn't want to protect itself? Like, how do you do that? And you know the answer. The you know the answer to that. You Foot leave. Voting? Foot voting, you leave and you act like it's too dramatic in your city and in your state. It's happening with in great numbers. It's hap I've had many clients astonished. I'm from New York. I grew up in Queens. Uh, I'm, from I'm living York. in Queens right now. That's where I'm talking to you from, actually. So. I went to, I graduated from Jamaica High School in 1958. It's not even around anymore. No, it's a four I school went to, part. And I went to take my I know, I went there. To, I went to PS26 in Fresh Meadows. I was the first, second grade class in PS26. You wouldn't go to Queens College, did you? No, I didn't. I went, uh, Michael Savage did. Um, Michael Savage and I went to high school together um, at Jamaica High School. He was in my year. He was a classmate. He was Michael Wiener then in high school. Yeah, and, no, um, he, he went to Queens College. I think he's on the podcast I think so. only now. So. But he went to Queens College. You, you this is okay now that we're talking about the radio side of this this is what also fascinates me about your book the essential liberty and life after covid-19 um you transcribe all these interviews you did with some of these amazing guests uh what was that like to put your radio work to paper did it, you felt compelled to do it obviously it was wonderful uh, it was wonderful because uh i i felt i i have I'm lucky enough to get really interesting guests. They're very gracious with their time and very generous. And uh, 
a lot of what they said in the course of a conversation is very conversational and so much wisdom came out unrehearsed during the course of a conversation. I, while I have subscribers to my podcast, it's Bob Zadig show, the podcast, anywhere podcasts exist, but I wanted to make their wisdom available. Um, not my own words. I was just there to pose the questions so that these guests can be smart. And there was so much wisdom. I wanted to find a way other than the podcast to make it accessible. And that's why I've done those books because I simply want to have almost as a reference tool where if it's in a book and you, and if you read the book and remember reading it, when you want to prove a point or learn something or refresh your memory, it's easier to find it in a book than listen to an hour podcast, hoping to find the two minutes you're listening, you're looking for. So that's it's a true. way to present the, they, it's a way to prevent, present the information in a way that preserves it and makes do it you, accessible. Do you think other hosts should do that? I feel like it's such a great tool. If you can put it to writing, what did you say? Well, you use a word that libertarians don't often use. You say, do I think other talk show hosts should? Alex, should is not my favorite word. If my friends say, Bob, you should do that, probably I'm going to end up being obnoxiously passive aggressive <laughs> and go out of my way not to do it, even if it's a movie that I should see. If somebody <laughs> tells me I should do something, the that's the best way to make sure I never do it. So do I think somebody should do something? Um, I rarely tell somebody they should do something. I say, you might want to consider this. Here's what I do. Think about it. See if it works for you. But should, um, as John Panette, that great comedian who passed a few years ago, has always used to say in his act, nay, nay, I don't say should that much. Uh-huh. Well, I... Shouldn't say should in front of you then next time. How about that? Um, That's perfect. <laughs> hey, uh, Bob, a couple of things. Firstly, is I read in this that they had an emergency plan five to ten years laid out before 9-11. And that freaked me out reading that uh, because I feel like that could be the same case here. Do you think they had a plan like this where, where they would just deal with a pandemic or what? Uh, you don't think – I don't want to say it was manufactured, but I would say – did they have things laid out before us that we didn't even know that they put into play now? If they do, it's part of the, it's part of the dark state, which I know nothing about. Um, it, I'll say it wouldn't surprise me. But those are, what happens is since, every, since elected officials don't plan on being around all that long before they move to higher office, uh, elected officials – rarely devote much time much time to something that's not going to happen on their watch and nor do they devote money to it that's why politicians don't fix the roads because let the next administration spend money on roads they'd rather buy votes than spend money that's going to help them buy votes so um, if there is a plan is something the bureaucracy did because it was a good idea at the time or somebody decided to create some budget line for that. Um, it has, it hasn't been kept up. We have so many emergency plans 
because that's what the bureaucracy does. But whether they're up to date, whether somebody has as a job description, they are responsible for keeping this current. Uh, I tend to doubt it. If somebody gets an idea, they spend a bucket of money, it goes somewhere into a into a computer memory, never to be seen again, and people got paid to do it, and then they move on. So if they did have a plan, I doubt that it was a very effective one. Forgive the cynicism. I can't help it. No, no, I, I want to hear hear that part. And when you said you didn't want us united, it was like, wow, that's a different take, but I see where you're coming from there. Hey, one of the things I've been advocating on this podcast recently is because the debate was so bad the other night. I mean, there were some good parts for Trump, and but Biden sank himself. So don't call it a debate. Don't call it a debate. <laughs> what do you want to call it? A, a circus? Well, don't a call it that. <laughs> it, it was whatever derogatory term you want to use, I'm in. <laughs> But do not call it a debate. <laughs> it you want to hear like a debate? A... Listen, listen to, listen to Reason Soho Forum. That's a debate. Oh, uh, and Reason is a very interesting magazine, by the way. I got to read more up on them. Uh, but no, I was going to say, because of what we saw Tuesday night, it inspired me to say, how come the young blood, the twenty-five to thirty-five, are not really including the conversation? Like you know, thirty-five, you can run for president. Do you think lowering the age to 25 is a ridiculous idea, or is it a possibility where we can get fresh blood on that stage even at 25? You mean as a as a, the age that somebody can run for that elected office? Yes. Yep. Um, I I have mixed feelings about that. Uh, on the one hand, um, it's the same feeling I have about term limits. Uh, I in my gut. Term limits seem like a good idea. On the other hand, it tells voters, no, you're not smart enough to uh, vote the right way, so we have to put limitations on your will. And even if you want to elect FDR for a third term, we're going to make it so you can't. Or even if you want to elect Obama or Clinton or Reagan for a third term, you can't. I don't like that. Uh, people should be allowed to vote for who they wish. On the other hand, term, there's something to be said for term limits. In the same vein, having age limitations on elected on who can run for public office, having age and the age limitations haven't changed in a very long time. Although people's behavior at different ages does change, uh, but to have age limits. Kind of, on the one hand, doesn't make sense. Why should we be deprived of the perfect candidate who just happens to be too young? He's still the perfect candidate. And if we're going to start saying, if you're below a certain age, you can't be elected. How about if you have below a certain IQ? How about if you're (laughs) below a certain educational limit? Once we start saying we have to protect voters from their own vote, why stop with age? Right. And actually, no thing. and the thing would be to me is if they say, well, 16 year olds should be voting. Well, how come then an older like 25 year old can't run for president? There would be such a disconnect there for me. And maybe you'd see that as well. The only the only voting I would prefer, I would I would support. Some limitations on who can vote, um, I would support having a voter have to pass the same citizenship test Mm -hmm. that newly um, nationalized citizens have to take. Um, I would support that. 
I, I say, and that that has some people think about using literacy tests to keep blacks from voting in the in the Jim Crow South. But we're not there anymore. And I I say to people who oppose those intellectual tests, I say, I'll tell you what, I have no bad motives. You can pick the people to design the test. Pick historians. I don't care. Pick anybody. I don't want to control who votes. I want to control the quality of the voter, not who votes. And so, therefore, I strongly support, passionately support a, a, a requirement that voters have a core understanding of government in order to vote. Strongly support it. Bob, your book is Essential Liberty, and we're facing that. If you have a couple more minutes, I've got to ask you about this because we're hitting on everything tonight. Mail-in ballots is restricting it a a loss of right, is allowing it a loss of right. What exactly does voting rights, would they say, in this whole area here? I am suspicious of mail-in voting. I say uh, using the pandemic to allow mail-in voting doesn't work for me. It seems like it's taking advantage of an existential crisis, the the pandemic, to to introduce a dramatic change in how we do business without having enough study of how it being done. I am just my gut tells me it's too susceptible to fraud. It's not that I'm not pointing to anything. You, the best I can do is tell you what my gut tells me because I have no empirical data. But I say if we can find a way to organize protests about mm-hmm. George Floyd's death, if, if people are allowed to congregate without masks in order to vandalize stores on Michigan Avenue in Chicago, then people ought to be allowed to do at least the same to vote. And we can we can extend voting hours, we can even have voting take place over more than one day to accommodate voters. And we can do that so people can vote safely. People, you mentioned football, 11,000 people are rolling the dice and going to a football game. If they can go to a football game and it's not against the law, they can vote. And that's my view. And by the way, another little thought I was having today is how come these felons who riot and loot are out on bail, you know, on the next the three hours later? Like it's same day delivery out of prison for rioters, but we might not have an election result for five months. How backwards is this? It doesn't make sense. To and me. and I did a show on this a couple of weeks ago uh, where we we could have a situation where. We have no president and no way to get one. My show, I, it's too, it, it doesn't lend itself to this, to this talk show tonight, but I would just refer you and my listeners and your listeners, forgive me, um, to my podcast of a couple of weeks ago where I discussed the whole issue of mail-in voting. And we could, it's possible, I don't want to say probable, that's scary and it's probably stupid, mm-hmm. but it, it's a clear possibility, not remote, clear possibility. We could have the Constitution doesn't tell us who the president is. We could have no president. Well, one one last prediction then. If the president is positive tonight, 
where does that leave us? Because he'll be in quarantine for 14 days. Does that mean Pence is president for 14 days? I mean, what's going to happen next? Well, that's that's not been tested. Of course, the president, one can argue that quarantine, he has a phone and he has all the tools he needs. He just can't meet with people. So I think under the 25th Amendment, um, he, he, he probably can't be forced to temporarily surrender his power. It just is not clear. But my guess is, no, he, he will not be able to campaign. And for Trump, the crowds are what seems to be his primary elect, election tool. What that will do to the election, God only knows. But um, I don't dare have a, a prediction beyond that. I don't think he's going to be I, – I think he will remain president but he might go insane. I mean, I don't mean to say the medical sense. I mean, um, I got the way you. people go. In quarantine, he's going to go nuts if that has to happen. Hey, Bob, you're on the sure West Coast. Will. Is California going to turn red at all? Do you see any inkling of that this, this election? No, no. Not until, not until uh, the foot voting and the economics force it to, but it just can't survive anymore. And it may turn red with fire before it turns red with Republicans. Well, hey, I've already seen a palm tree turn up a flame. That's how bad it is over there. And I'm praying for mm -hmm. you guys. I hope your breathing's okay because I know that that whole now, area I is live, a mess. In, in my area, it's clear and pristine and perfect. And then finally, Bob Zadig, you have the show. You have your website, Bob Zadig, Z-A-D-E-K.com, Bob Zadig.com. But what's one thing your listeners your subscribers don't know about you and your friends may not know about you that you're willing to reveal on this podcast. I always ask my guests one thing no one knows about them. Well, uh, how I became a libertarian when I was 17 and socially inept and didn't imagine any 16 or 15 year old girl would have any interest in me. I was working in as a waiter in the what was called the mountains north of New York City and my the waiter who was who I worked for I was a busboy he was he was 6 months older than me but 10 years older socially and he took me under his wing even though we were the same age and he said if you want to make it with girls they have to think you're deep and the way girls will think you're deep, this is in 1959, the way girls will think you're deep, if you read one of two books, doesn't matter which one, both will work. He said, the Kama Sutra or Atlas Shrugged. And I picked the Kama Sutra first because it was like 81 pages. Atlas Shrugged is 1,100. Sure. And, but I couldn't do any of the positions in the Kama Sutra because I wasn't, I wasn't agile. So I was, I was stuck with, Atlas Shrugged. And so I read Atlas Shrugged in order for girls to think I was deep. And oh, because Ayn Rand's thing. Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand is their thing, you know? I, I get what you're saying. That's right. So they didn't think I was deep, but I discovered libertarianism while riding on the subway when I was 17 in order to get to be deep. And I was 17 when I read it, and I never left the reservation again. I've been a libertarian ever since. There's a secret nobody knows. Well, thank you for sharing that on this podcast, Bob Zadek. And what is your 
Twitter uh, Twitter account just so I can direct people. No, uh, it's Arzadik, Arzadik, um, at Arzadik, uh, and my my website is is bobzadik.com. My email address is bob at bobzadik.com. I try to be responsive to emails as best that I can. Uh, my radio station, my my show is is live streamed nationally um, from my website and from the network from and what time uh, would that be? 860, so the answer. It's on West Coast time, 8 to 9 a.m. It's live, um, and it's live streamed on the web, and it's live in about 7 a.m. markets, and then the podcast uh, the show, the Sunday show gets dropped into the podcast, usually Monday in the afternoon. So if you subscribe to the podcast, um, all of my 730 shows are in there. Each show is different. There are no repeats. And each guest is different. Although I've had some guests on more than once because they're just too smart. I have to get back to them because I love them too much. And it's an hour show, no commercials, no nothing, just smart people. Well, Robert, this has been so great to connect with you, and and please come again. Oh, I'm it's keep an honor. The book. It's a and, it's a privilege for you. I'm so grateful for you to invite me onto your show. Um, I'll come back anytime you ask, Alec. Um, I'm yours. Well, I will definitely have you back on, and thank you for that. And that was Bob Zadik. I'm Alex Garrett. I pray to God we don't wake up and the COVID and the president's COVID positive. I'll leave you with that note. Have a great morning, night, wherever you are. Have a good one.